This morning we are reading um, from Mark 6, and we're starting in verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them all to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. God, thank you for showing us and revealing your truths to us. This is Sam Evenson. uh, And he is going to recite Psalm 23 for us. I'll give you this mic. That might be a little easier. He's memorized this as part of uh, camp, going, going to camp this summer, and as the young people around here have been asking uh, if they can say their verses, um, it allows them to go to camp with less and less cost. But we are talking about the feeding of the 5,000 today, and Psalm 23 has a big bearing upon this, so you can maybe stand, sure. How's it start? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you. You're a good man. That was fantastic. Thank you, Sam. Other than the resurrection... The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle repeated in all four Gospels. It's the only one. And so there must be some significance to this story, and we're going to find that out today. 
Uh, last week in Mark, we were in chapter 6, we saw Jesus sending out his disciples on their first unaccompanied mission, training day, work experience. But before they returned, we're told the ugly truth of Herod's birthday debauchery, which ends in the beheading of John the Baptist. And Mark puts that story inside the greater story on purpose, because he wants us to see that the disciples are sent in the same manner and in the same method as the prophets of old. And in the same manner and in the same method as John the Baptist. So when the specifics of his murder get placed in the center of that story, and it's real prominent, we are made to see that the shadow of death stretches over the disciples' ministry, as well as Jesus, as well as our own. Psalm 23.4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is the backdrop to the feeding of the 5,000. It's heavy, it's harsh, but it's real. Because death and rejection, persecution and abuse all intersect the path of the disciple. But we are not to fear, we are not to be anxious, and we are not to back down. So there you go, that's the recap from last week. You might have to die for your faith. On to today. When meditating on the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it's critical to see that this passage is framed from the perspective of one word. The word is shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus' compassion for the crowd is real because he sees that they are as sheep without a shepherd. That little phrase has a massive impact on how we are to read this story, and it changes this from a childhood classic about a big miracle to a story of a savior set on rescuing the lost sheep of Israel. On this point, so many commentators go to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words about sheep without a shepherd. There were questions but no answers. Distress but no relief, anguish of conscience but no deliverance, tears, but no consolation, sin, but no, no forgiveness. They were waiting for good news, and all they got was good advice. Bonhoeffer asks, what is the use of scribes, of devotees to the law, of preachers, and all the rest, when there are no shepherds for the flock? And this sure sounds like the last words from the book of Judges, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their eyes. 
and the results were terrible. Without a good shepherd, we are a cataclysmic race. But with a good shepherd, we can walk through the shadows of this world, the valleys of death, and even in that, without fear. When the disciples return from their commission, Jesus bids them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Like a good shepherd, he takes his disciples away to the wilderness. It's his place of retreat, his place of prayer and of communion. But any wilderness motif means that we are not very far from the Exodus story. Last Sunday, we saw how Jesus sent out the twelve with the same list of possessions that the Israelites were supposed to take with them on their flight from Egypt. Paraphrasing Exodus 12, eat the Passover in haste and be ready with a belt, a tunic, sandals, and a staff. But now the apostles are actually in the wilderness, the desert. And they're not there as ones fleeing, but as ones reclining. And I want you to hear that the underlying promise of this passage is that Jesus is offering his followers rest and a meal because that's what they need said they had no leisure even to eat in this retreat the promise of intimate fellowship is initiated by jesus you might think of the last supper and you wouldn't be too far off they've worked hard for the lord and now need his care Daniel Aiken writes, Some people rust out in ministry because they are lazy. Others burn out because they never take a break. Here we see Jesus give the command to rest for a while. And it was not a sin for them to take a sabbatical. It would have been a sin for them not to. In fact, the greater the demands, the greater our need to find time alone with Jesus. Mark 6, 32 and 33 says, And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Not many, or sorry, now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. The throngs, the masses... The crowds from whom Jesus and his men seek solace from arrive early. The race was on and the many got there before the few. They ran ahead because they recognized them. Verse 34, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The people chase Jesus down. They want their feel-goods, their healings, their miracles. If there's one thing that crowds don't do is feel compassion. They don't care that Jesus just lost his cousin, perhaps one of his closest friends. 
They don't care that the disciples just ran a ministry marathon two by two or that they can't even stop to eat. The crowds just want their pound of fish, as it were. While we feel frustration over this, on behalf of our Lord, He does not. He doesn't get mad, feel gypped, annoyed, but He instead feels compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And Mark's audience would have recognized this phrase immediately as Moses' words to God. When God told Moses that his life was coming to a close, Moses' thoughts were not for himself, but to his flock. Numbers 27, 15 to 18 says, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. Those are totally shepherding words. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eliezer the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. And actually the next verse says, Invest in him some of your authority. Because Moses was special. And Joshua only gets some of what Moses had. Moses was God's man like none other. No one else communed with God like Moses, except for maybe Adam and Eve. But Moses was still limited. He was finite, mortal, a dying man in this passage. So when the gospel writers make comparisons, they make sure that we see how Jesus is the better Moses. Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this is actually a key verse for our passage. Instead of guiding his people, Herod the Tetrarch, the little king of Galilee, lives a life of opulence and detachment from his subjects. He takes the women he wants. He feasts on the livelihood of his people. He kills the tellers of truth, for he has just killed John at his party, and he will soon act similarly toward Jesus. You might remember that Luke tells us, before crucifying Jesus, Pilate sends Christ to Herod, and it's this Herod, because he happens to be in Jerusalem at the time. Luke 23, and Herod with his soldiers treated him, Jesus, with contempt and mocked him, because when Herod would press him, Jesus was silent. He wouldn't play his game. Herod wanted a magic trick, a miracle, and Jesus gave him nothing. Then Herod arrayed him in splendid clothing, opulence, and sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So Israel's political leaders were no shepherds, but neither were their spiritual leaders. The priests and the scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees would do no better. Jeremiah 50, 
prophesies this. My people have been lost. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. And this paints a very graphic picture of God's people turning away from him and pursuing idols and worshiping at the high places, right? The mountains and the hills of the land. Ezekiel 34 is even more poignant. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on the high hills. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. It's damning. And yet this describes the shepherds that should be looking after the sheep. But here on the shores of Galilee, we see Jesus acting as the ultimate shepherd. And here's a real good list. The Lord is my shepherd, from Psalm 23. He is the rejoicing shepherd, from Luke 15, who searches for the one lost sheep. He is the good shepherd, from John 10, who lays his life down for his sheep. He is the chief shepherd, from 1 Peter 5, who honors his servants. He is the great shepherd of the sheep from Hebrews 13. And from Revelation 17, sorry, 717, he is the lamb in the midst of the throne who will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. He is the lamb that is a shepherd. Jesus sees the people's great need and has compassion on them because they are lost, totally without a guide, and he gives them what they need. Mark 6, 34b says, and he began to teach them many things. We hold healing and restoration or exorcism as the most important things, but foremost, Jesus teaches Mark 1 says, that is why I have come. He instructs, because that's what our spirit needs most. Our innermost being needs to be fed soul food. Psalm 23.3 says, he restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Christian... It is the word of God given to you in scriptures 
that you need most. It's, Dallas is still ringing. Scripture has the power to restore your soul. It is what we need. Mark 6, 35 to 38. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Now this is the fun stuff of the Bible, isn't it? Where Jesus is just talking to his disciples so casually, and they're totally freaking out. Ah! Jesus, the boat is about to sink. And he's like, oh, is it? I didn't really notice here on this comfy pile of rope and stuff. Jesus, there are 500 hungry men behind you. If you, if you just tur- turn your head just a little, you'd see them there. And Jesus is like, oh, I must not have noticed them while I was teaching them for the last seven hours. They're going crazy, and he is just so nonchalant. Their tone is telling. They actually command Jesus. You need to send them away. And it's always a mess when we tell God what to do. Jesus says, no, you feed them. But that would take half a year's wage. Well, do you have any money? No. Buns? Maybe. What about kippered herring? Um, we have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, that'll do. In verse 39 and 40, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And wait a second, you might say, where'd all this green grass come from? This is strange. They went to a desolate place, a wilderness, perhaps a desert even, and he tells the crowds now to sit on grass. Is this a conundrum? Not really. There are dry patches and grassy places all over Israel. But more than a physical explanation, this is a sheep-feeding narrative. So a literary explanation is way better than a literal one. What we are to see is the symbolism of green grass, of lushness being around them. And this is to bring to mind the promises of God's provision for His people. Ezekiel 34 says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish the wild beasts from the land so they will dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the, des- and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And trees of the field will yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 is referring to. They shall be secure in their land. I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed by hunger. We are meant to see the feeding of the 5,000 
as a foreshadow of heaven, a glimpse of abundance and the total provision of glory. This is revelation stuff, eschatology. This story is a touch of what ultimate salvation looks like. Psalm 23, 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Friends, Jesus provides. In verse 41 and 42, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and they were satisfied. Jesus prays a blessing. He looks to God in gratitude and he breaks bread. Jesus is a better Moses, the prophet of God, because Jesus' words give life. He is the bread of life. Jesus is a better David, the great shepherd king of Israel, because he provides real security, real sustenance, real leadership, and salvation to his people. Jesus is the better Elijah, who stayed with the widow of Zarephath for maybe two years. And during that time, her flower pot and her oil flask never were empty. But in that story, they still had to mix and knead and bake the bread. Here, Jesus just multiplies bread and fish through division. Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Note that the promise of God is not to take away our enemies. That's what we want. That's what we pray for all the time. But what he does promise is to provide for us all that we need while we are in their presence. So God doesn't remove the Pharisees. And Herod still ruled from his corner of Israel. The shadow of death still lingers over all the faithful as it lingers over you and I today. But the anointed are fed. Their cup bears the abundant blessing of God. Verse 43 and 44, And they took up the twelve baskets, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now our passage ends with the disciples finally sitting down to the meal that they've been anticipating for 13 verses. And they feast. And the disciples recline. And they're satisfied. Oh, and as a little tangent toward getting there, Jesus decides to feed 5,000 men. This story is a children's classic Perhaps no other Bible story so bluntly speaks to our hearts or our stomachs quite like this one. I can tell you for me, I've never given this story much thought. Just beyond the surface facts, a bunch of loaves, a bunch of fish, a bunch of people. So I had to sit in it. I had to dwell in it and read it for what it says and read for what it doesn't say. 
read it in the context of the chapter and the book of Mark and the whole Bible and read what faithful thinkers over the centuries have said and seen in this passage. And then and only then does the message present itself. And it's this, Jesus is the good shepherd. That's why this story is there. And this story is just a morsel. 5,012 meals, maybe 13, Jesus probably ate too. 5,013 meals is a crumb because this is only a foretaste. Song of Solomon, chapter 2 says, He brought me to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. God is so good. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone, this is talking to you and I, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And how often do we run after the things that just whet our appetites but don't satisfy? Just get us enthralled, but do nothing for our hearts, our souls, or our stomachs. I listened to a fella at a conference once. He, he worked with Billy Graham, maybe it was Franklin. And he said, visiting India, he saw these children uh, scouring garbage piles outside of New Delhi. And these children were looking for food. And he wanted to yell at them, that is not food, that's garbage, that's killing you. What you are eating is killing you. But it's all they had. How much is the food that we are eating killing us? The good shepherd gives us good food. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And the next verse says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The time's now. The time is right now. When Scripture talks about God's care and His rescue and His love, food is often involved. Food is a language that we all understand, we all desire. Food then is a great metaphor for care and provision and Sabbath even. The feeding of the 5,000 story ought to push our eyes toward heaven, towards something greater than ourselves. 
toward God, our creator, our source, our sustainer. And this little story should give us the sense to look toward him. And ultimately, the culmination of all things when God's provision for his people is complete. Heaven is a feast. So in the here and now, in this already but not yet, good food and fine drink are samples of heaven to come. Deep communion and generous community are appetizers of God's glory. All of it bought with the precious blood of the spotless lamb who is our shepherd. So how fitting it is that you and I will share the meal of communion. We will come to the table of remembrance. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need more, what, more than what this life offers. The things that we chase are hollow and empty and are killing us. But you sent your son as our shepherd, as our hope. Lord, would you lift our hearts, fill us with a desire to obedience that we might do your will and our souls would be fed. Lord, thank you that you are good and able. Amen. Sing that again. Turn.